my name is John Seidel, and I'm here on behalf of the LSC to uh, welcome John Bowen, who is the Dunbar Van Cleve Professor of Arts and Sciences uh, in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Washington in St. Louis, and who's also, thanks to the Lieberholm Trust, uh, a visiting professor, Lieberholm visiting professor here uh, at the LSE uh, until August. Um, and uh, it's a, a privilege, um, perhaps somewhat less of a pleasure to introduce him, uh, insofar as uh, thinking about the, uh, the vast corpus of his scholarship uh, puts the rest of us uh, in, in shame as mere mortals. Um, but uh, I'm familiar with his work, and many of you will be, from three books and much else that he's produced on uh, Islam and society in Indonesia, beginning with his book, Sumatran Politics and Poetics, uh, his book, Muslims uh, Through Discourse, and another book on Islam, uh, Law and Equality, all of which in different ways uh, have shed more light on Islam in Indonesia than any other uh, ethnographic work uh, that comes to mind. But since that time, he's moved on to scholarship on Islam in France uh, with two books, Why the French Don't Like Headscarves and Can Islam Be French, which uh, not just intellectually but politically, it seems to me, are, are very interesting and courageous interventions. And alongside these works, which show tremendous capacity for uh, leaping across, if not tall buildings, then continents, um, in terms of his scholarship, he's also been uh, addressing major issues in the social sciences with regard to the study of Islam. I think he has a new book out on the study of Islam, and another book about religion and practice, and an a co-edited volume a few years back on critical comparisons in culture and politics in which he engaged with issues of comparison, uh, not just within anthropology, but uh, within other disciplines uh, that engaged in important, I think, debate and in some measure discussion uh, with people in a very different uh, tradition of social science work. Uh, so it's uh, a great honor to welcome him, him here to the LSE and also exciting to hear him speak on an issue of great methodological significance, but also to get a sense of work that he is doing now, which will bring his real ethnographic and analytical talents to the study of Islam in this country, uh, among many others. Uh, so without further ado, Professor John Bowen. Thanks, John. I guess that means I buy you a round. Is that right? All that. Um, here's, the, here's the title, and, and you'll see there's a, there's a methodological echo of last time's lecture, for those of you who were there, where I, I said we ought to approach discussions of secularism in a way that would allow us to meet three criteria that are certainly desiderata for those of us who, who work on, um, on a broad range of societies. One of these was that the concepts we use, the analytical concepts we use, ought to correspond to our intuitions about what these uh, phenomena are in the world. The second was that they ought to be useful in comparing a broad range of widely differing societies. It's not just anthropologists, but historians and many others who are also interested in these comparisons. And finally, can be useful in analyzing how things really work within a particular society, how institutions work and change, and why conflicts emerge. And I, after considering several um, used, widely used approaches to secularism, I argued for an approach that looked at modes of governance 
modes of governing religion in different societies, and in particular how states seek to encompass religious organizations in a relatively even-handed way that allows them to exercise some control over the members of these organizations. And then I then looked at, quite, at two quite different cases. This is confusing. I looked at two quite different cases last time, France and Indonesia, to argue that approaching them in this way from this notion of secularism as a mode of governing religions helped understand some particular puzzles not otherwise clear to us. That France, for example, despite its strong rhetoric of laïcité or secularity, would be so keen on supporting religious institutions, including mosques, churches, and religious schools. And that Indonesia, despite having the world's largest Muslim population and a nationwide system of Islamic courts, would seek to strictly define and limit the role of Islam. Both states, French and Indonesian, seek to support and control religious bodies, protecting rights of worship, but also limiting the degree to which they can define, religious groups can define the rights and actions of their members. So this was a pragmatic argument that looking at things in this way allows us to grasp the particular mechanisms of governing religion in each of several societies while doing so in a broadly comparative way. I proceed in an analogous way tonight advocating an anthropological approach to studying Islam that focuses on local processes of reasoning best viewed through deliberations and debates, but in a broadly comparative context. That part is analogous to last time, because two, but because these two objects of study are of quite different natures, so too will be the approach. Secularism refers to an analytical construct meant to capture something of state-level practices. Islam refers to a set of locally used constructs that are both putatively unitary, one Islam, and widely divergent in their social realities. So while last time I worked from the top down, this time I'll be working from the ground up. Let me begin with two general characteristics of Islam as I see it. <clears throat> First, that it has at its heart authorized forms of genealogical reasoning, <clears throat> that is, ways to justify legal judgments, spiritual practices, and institutional arrangements by tracing them back to authoritative sources. A practitioner of tasawwuf or Sufism, as we usually call it, will trace a spiritual lineage back to a companion of the prophet. A jurish, jurist will trace the basis for an opinion back to a noted scholar or to a statement made by the prophet known through a report or hadith or to a verse of the Quran itself. Some Muslims will justify their choice of clothing or ways of greeting or even their style of toothbrush back to what they think were the prophet's practices. But even more striking is the care with which the links in these genealogies are studied and debated. Hadith, the report of what the prophet did, said, or sometimes failed to do, will include not only something that the prophet Muhammad said, but also who heard it and to whom she or he told it and so on until it was collected and compiled by one of the great scholars of Ahadith. It is only sound, reliable, if everyone who reported it was known not to lie, possessed an impressive memory, and was of generally good character. This genealogical feature of Islam leads to convergences on certain sources, and it also facilitates global conversations. A new finding about a hadith transmitter made in Syria is of importance to a scholar living in Malaysia and to another living in Chicago. A Muslim in Bombay or Mumbai, if you wish, who follows the Shafi'i legal school is referring to many of the same texts as is one living in Jakarta or in Egypt. 
The focus on these practices of authorizing texts was pointed out in 1986 by Talal Assad, and having been quite critical of his approach to secularism last time, let me hasten to say that here that in all my writing on Islam, I have greatly profited from his point. We differ on whether there is always a single source of orthodoxy doing the authorizing. He implies, yes, I don't think so. But I add to this insight that of the historian Bill Graham that Islam's practices of authorizing are genealogical in form, as I've described. Sufi lineages, claims along which scholars pass reports of the Prophet Muhammad's statements, and Shi'i lineages of imams all anchor legitimacy in direct transmission. And here a second feature of Islam enters the picture. Islam is equally about contextualization. A certain verse of the Quran was revealed at a particular moment. This fact may have implications for how we understand it today. The famous verse authorizing a man to take more than one wife not only has a textual context, he has to treat them both equally, and who can do that? But also a social context. The verse was revealed at a time when wars had killed many Muslim husbands, leaving widows and orphans needing care. Polygamy was a socially sensible response. Does this contextual fact explain why uh, it limit the right to a second wife to such demographic moments? Or does it merely explain why God chose that moment to reveal a norm of timeless applicability? Therein lie many debates, particularly these days. But Islam has also been about contextualization in another way. Precisely because its texts encompass quite a lot of human life, prayer, inheritance, commerce, they have been adapted to forms, to norms and values already in place. This adaptation happened right off and led to the rise of the four broadly accepted Sunni legal schools. But it also happens in smaller ways. Where I worked for years in Highland Aceh, Islamic texts and traditions were drawn on to reinterpret earlier ideas of the powers of the forest and how best to talk to the dead. These adaptive processes lead to a wide divergence of practices across societies in how property is divided, in how sorcery is dealt with, and in how, and how many prayers one performs at particular moments. Here then is the mandate for the anthropology of Islam. Study the ways Muslims understand and authorize their lives by linking up genealogically to the main texts text and traditions, and study how they do so in ways that pick up on contextually specific social features. Doing so requires knowing quite a bit about local lives, because it brings us often into very private matters. But to see how something is locally specific through long-term work also requires knowing how and whether it is different elsewhere. So we have to do comparative work. And much of the time we do so through our conversations with our colleagues. Sometimes we do it ourselves. What seems to be the same idea, say Salafi notions that one should only draw on Quran and Hadith, might develop into one set of ideas in one place and quite another somewhere else. I will be developing a different example tonight, but the general point goes, I think, for many dimensions of Muslim lives. It also goes, I think, mutatis, a whole lot of mutandises for uh, Buddhism and Christianity, among other things. Let me add one more methodological, methodological bit, which is that if we look for issues that people argue about, we are likely to hit on something that matters to them and therefore ought to matter for us. So I tell my students, see what, see what people are, are arguing about in their local debates and start there. What I will do tonight is to begin in a very micro fashion with two friends of mine who find themselves brokering among opposed views, one in Aceh and one in Paris, <clears throat> and then work up to the texts they both refer to. I then look at the debates that surround the texts and show why 
the uses they made of these texts would be somewhat different. The result is a little bit of what we might think of as the discursive geography of Islam, a kind of mapping of arguments and references across different societal spaces. Now, first Aceh, Indonesia, the very, uh, the very northwest tip of Sumatra, where, as I explained last time, but I'll obviously summarize tonight, some of you weren't here, <coughs> the discursive possibilities are even more constrained than is generally the case in Indonesia. This is so because the vicious civil war in Aceh led to a settlement that gave the province a special status and the right to pass laws based on Sharia. Thereafter, all debates about law and social norms must be framed in terms of positions about Sharia, about Islam, Islamic law. Things are even more complicated because the limits of Aceh's Sharia-infused autonomy are by no means clear. The Achenese legal system remains formally part of the national system and subject to all review processes, including by the constitutional court. But many of its leaders claim that the governing regulations gives it carte blanche with respect to Islam. This issue is coming to a head right now, as I mentioned last time, because of new laws permitting stoning of adulterers, laws denounced by the governor of Aceh and by many in the national legal structure, as well as in private by many on the Islamic court in Aceh. The governor, the leading political party, and many of the judges on the Achenese appellate court, appellate Islamic court, oppose these broadenings of Sharia. Many of the rurally situated religious scholars, who are quite influential, strongly support them. This complex situation was, was uh, the, uh, the crisis of secularism that I developed last time. This is all to say that anyone speaking publicly about Islam in Aceh is doing so in a context where powerful forces stand for conservative views of Sharia, others for more modernist or liberal views, and still others for Achenese identity and traditions. You try to think before you speak, in other words. On the evening in question, in 2007, the person in question, Al-Yasa Abu Bakr, was in a tight spot. Oh, sorry, this is just a summary of the last one. I never quite gotten the coordination hang. Al-Yasa Abu Bakr. He was the director of the Islamic Sharia office in Aceh, and his was the public face of the campaign to implement Islam through laws, regulations, and judicial rulings. But at a conference held in the spacious halls of Banda Aceh's largest hotel, he was peppered with accusations that the laws passed so far had dealt with such lesser matters as drinking alcohol and meeting in secluded places with non-relatives of the opposite sex, and had ignored matters of greater importance. Several teachers at the local Islamic university said that in terms of the five maqasid al-sharia, the objectives of, of Islamic norms, the objectives or goals of sharia, <clears throat> issues that endanger human life, such as damage to the environment and problems of youth unemployment, ought to be given the highest priority and not those that the government had chosen to tackle, whether women wear hijab or whether some poor people are gambling. As it happens, Al-Yasa, who'd studied in Cairo before completing his dissertation in Indonesia, also reasons in terms of the Maqasid. The evening after his public grilling, he told me how the writings of Muhammad At-Tahir ibn Ashur, the 20th century Tunisian scholar, had influenced him and had also shaped judicial decisions in Aceh. He cited the example of how judges allot necessary maintenance to a wife upon divorce. I'm quoting Al-Yasa. The ulama, religious scholars, used to say that maintenance only consists of food and clothing. But when we think in terms of the maqasid, the objectives, it becomes clear that shelter also enters in because it too is a basic need. The Moroccan family code draws on this reasoning. In some cases, we have gone beyond that code as when we decided about the division of wealth upon a divorce. In Morocco, the wealth acquired by a couple is divided as joint property only, in other words, divided equal, 
only if the couple had signed an agreement to that effect before marriage. But here it happens automatically. As Algasa pointed out, judges settling a divorce in Aceh generally divide all goods acquired during a marriage equally between the husband and wife. They do so on the grounds that the husband and wife make equal contributions to the household. In the 1980s and 1990s, they justified their rule as a matter of local custom that had become part of Sharia, following long-standing ideas about how judges ought to reason. And they said that this approach only marginally modified rulings drawn from the prevailing Shafi'i legal school, or mazhab. But now, Aliasa was saying something quite different, something more than this, that it was preferable to return to the overall goals or objectives of God's revelations and to measure alternative legal rules against those objectives. This position allowed him to compare legal traditions and to say that Aceh, which follows the Shafi'i legal school, <coughs> had improved on Morocco, which follows the Maliki one. These are the four Sunni legal schools. With respect to divorce settlements, he could compare the two approaches in terms of how well each rule provided for the ex-wife's basic needs, and he could define those needs in terms of his practical sense of everyday life in Aceh, and his moral sense of what is required for equity, fairness. <coughs> His detractors used the very same yardstick when they derided the government's, his, sense of legislative priorities as failing to address basic needs, environment, etc. Both sides drew on a language of objectives rather than the alternative languages of custom, local norms, or juris jurisprudential tradition that until recently had filled the spaces of learned Indonesian Sharia discourse. This shared way of justifying rules and priorities is relatively new and requires further examination. Now, at about the same time in Paris, the Tunisian educator Hishim El Arafa was in his office fielding queries from young French Muslims. As a working imam and the director of a major Islamic institute, Hishim has to arrive, arrive at ways of adapting the Islamic normative tradition to a society lacking such Islamic institutions as interest-free banks, it's not like England, uh, legally empowered religious marriages, and sufficient halal abattoirs. His challenge is not to update traditions of jurisprudence, but to figure out how to transplant norms established elsewhere, say in Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, to a new society, or put in another way, how to address the gap between Islamic normative pronouncements and the French social landscape. He finds an important bridging concept in the notion of Muqasid Asharia. Most of the questions Muslims bring to him concern how to properly marry and divorce in France. French law requires a couple to celebrate a civil marriage at City Hall before carrying out any other kind of marriage celebration. And in any case, religious officials have no legal authority to wed a couple. Most Muslims who come to him think that the state has nothing to do intrinsically with Islamic marriage, and some marry only in religious fashion, at home or in a mosque with witnesses, the bride's guardian and perhaps an imam. Some young women find themselves without legal recourse after their husbands leave them. And the online forums are replete with anguished queries about what, in such situations, a woman can do. And in my third lecture, I will be comparing the French and English experiences around these issues. My third lecture in May, May 4th. Hisham, who studied in his native Tunisia and then in Saudi Arabia and France, tells the young men and women who come to him that they should consider the civil marriage to be part of what Islam requires of them and not just a French legal state rule. I quote Hisham. Some people think that having to go to City Hall and fill out forms is too much work, and moreover, they consider marriage to be a religious matter only. And some Islamic authorities say that also. They say that the Prophet in his time did not have laws about registering marriage, so it's not necessary for Muslims to do so. But then you can say, this may make you laugh, but there's something to it, that back then the society was composed of tribes, and if someone married 
he never would just leave his spouse because his life would be in danger. Everyone knew each other then, so there was no need for these regulations. But now it is different. That is reasoning according to the Makassid of Scripture. Hishim, like Al-Yasa and Ache, cites Ibn Ashur. He also quotes the 14th century scholar Abu Ishaq al-Shatibi, who distinguished between the timeless principles of the Makassid found in the Quran and the historically changing products of jurisprudence, or fiqh. In these two very different places, the, the world's largest Muslim society on the one hand and a proudly secularist state on the other, probably second most proud after Turkey, scholars are citing the objectives of Sharia, that's for discussion, and the writings of Ibn Ashur and Shatidi to validate their visions of Islamic normativity. These ref referential overlaps attest to parallels in their projects. Both groups of scholars reach for a normative ground outside of traditional jurisprudence and also to the intersections of their webs of reference. Indonesian Muslims studying in Leiden and Cairo, European Muslims found following arguments coming from Qatar and Virginia. But they are pursuing quite different projects. Alyasa and others in Indonesia, including his critics, are working within an Islamic legal frame of reference in a post-colonial mixed legal system where they try to move Islamic norms beyond the limits of traditional jurisprudence to realize certain universal values. As we shall see, some scholars in Indonesia charge them as playing fast and loose, loose with the texts of scripture. Hisham and others in Europe are working within a secular society where they look for practic practical equivalence to Islamic institutions. Some scholars, most of them outside Europe, charge them with playing fast and loose with fiqh. These two cases mark out two distinct pathways of claims and challenges that both reach back to the traditions that authorize Makassid reasoning. And indeed they do so Oh, yeah. They do so by invoking a prestigious lineage that stems from the Prophet to the Caliph Umar, then to the scholars Abu Hanifa, Razali, and Shatibi, and in the 20th century to Ibn Ashur and Yusuf al-Qadawi, the, the, the scholar who on um, uh, Al Jazeera, broadcast from Qatar, uh, gives advice on Islamic matters. In the 12th century, Razali had identified the interests of Muslims their uh, maslaha in the singular as, quote, I'm quoting Ghazali now, the preservation of the objective of the law consists of having five things, preservation of religion, of life, of reason, of descendants, and of property. Close quote. Shatibi then elaborated these ideas to say that the Sharia was created to protect these five universals that are necessities, he said. And these are then supported by desiderata of lower rank. This is Shatibi. Uh, needs and improvements. Performing uh, salat, worship, for example, is necessary to protect religion. But humans also require allowances for travel and sickness, which he saw as their needs. Local customs regarding cleanliness and dress should be seen as improvements that contribute, contribute on the lowest level to the overall objective. One can highlight different features of this scheme. All right, so. Same text, two different groups of people, Europe and Aceh. The Aceh teachers, objecting to current Sharia laws, emphasized its hierarchical aspect, charging that the state had implemented simple improvements while neglecting necessities, environments more important than how women dress. As we shall see, certain uh, contemporary scholars, including uh, Yusuf al-Qadawi, emphasized the interdependence of these levels or degrees, arguing that because, because needs underpin necessities, they sometimes can be treated in the same way. But this diverse set of scholars and their competitors operate within a shared epistemological space where they engage in justifying their positions through tracing them back through a genealogy of learned authority. 
And I'll talk about Indonesia and then France. Al-Yasa, you will recall, cites the Maqasid as providing a justification for bringing judicial rulings closer to social norms. In doing so, he followed a long sequence of debates in Indonesia about whether or how to carry out changes in jurisprudence. At successive moments in the 20th century, scholars have advanced four distinct arguments to justify departing from the, tradition, from the background teaching of the Shafi'i legal tradition. Each of these arguments was part of a global movement in Islamic reasoning. Each was also attractive because of current local situations. So here's an example of, of shifting situations producing shifting sets of justifications. First was the modernist movement, which developed in the early 20th century when religious scholars returning to the Dutch East Indies from Mecca and Cairo brought the proposal associated with the scholar Muhammad Abdu that one should draw from all four of those Sunni legal schools, Maliki, Shafi'i, Hanbali, Hanafi, to better reinterpret scripture. This, this approach provided the juristic underpinning used by what's called the new group, the Kaum Muda in Indonesia, to reform matters of worship, in particular uh, matters of worship, ibadah, service and worship to God, and among them in particular salat, the worship that you, that you, you see people doing in a mosque. More generally, reformers wished to refashion attitudes towards authority, away from following the Shafi'i tradition, and towards a willing to undertake ijtihad, independent legal reasoning. Many of these advocating uh, this new approach did so in order to intervene in long-standing debates and indeed wars in West Sumatra between advocates of tradition and advocates of a pure reform of Islam. They also did so <coughs> to promote more gender equal social relations and in particular ideas of the family that would allow for movement and choice. And those of you who work in Indonesia think of the novels of Hamka, whose father was a leader in this movement. Different issues were posed, however, during the 1950s shortly after independence, when scholars and judges debated and deliberated how Islam, local social practices, and modernity could be conjugated in the new, new national courts. And in doing so, they brought forth a second new approach to rethinking Islamic law. They focused on social questions, mu'amalat, and particularly on matters of inheritance, marriage, and divorce, where local norms and practices, adat, or in Indonesian just adat, without the ain, the, the Islamic norms, and a new sense of modernity competed as frameworks for resolving disputes. Some judge, judges and scholars argued that sharia ought to include local norms, and indeed that Islamic judges had always drawn on local norms in rendering their judgments. Scholars as dissimilar as the theologian Nukholish Majid and the law professor Muhammad Daud Ali agreed on this view of sharia. In commenting on the new Indonesian compilation of Islamic law promulgated by President Suharto in 1992, uh, Daud Ali, the law professor, contrasted patriarchal Arab custom to bilateral Indonesian adat, and on this basis justified dividing marital property equally, the principle proudly mentioned by Al-Yasa. Right, because local custom supports that notion. But these first two approaches, combining the legal schools and drawing on adat or custom, have their limits for those seeking to bring judicial rulings more completely in line with values of gender equality and religious pluralism. Those two methods depend on finding the desired values already in place, either in the society or in pre-existing jurisprudence, and did not warrant going beyond these norms and sources. The laws that were passed in Indonesia in the 1970s and 1980s remain within these limits. For example, in response to demands to curb polygamy, new laws set restrictions on a man's right to take a second wife on, on grounds of public policy, on Islamic grounds, siyasa sharia, but did not contest that right. By the 1990s, a new generation of Muslim reformers wanted to go further and prohibit polygamy outright. 
and a fortiori to stem mounting pressure to rescind even the earlier restrictions on its practice. They could not justify banning polygamy in terms of Indonesian norms and practices because Indonesians sometimes do practice polygamy. They needed a new way of justifying change. Some of these activists turned to a third line of reasoning, one that looked at the historical context of a verse or hadith and thus became known as contextualization. I referred to this briefly earlier on. These scholars look at the, the Meccan or Medinan context for a revelation or a prophetic statement in order to adduce the illah or the reason for the revelation. And then they consider how that reason ought to be given social form in the present day with all the differences in time and place. Following this reasoning, anti-polygamy scholars argued that God granted men the right to take additional wives in order to solve that pressing demographic problem I referred to earlier, uh, the moment that, where there were many widows and orphans needing care. With that specific ilah no longer present, we've got roughly equal numbers, we've got a few more women than men in Indonesia, the practice of polygamy no longer had a religious justification. Now this argument has been made in many Muslim societies across the Muslim world. It's open to two important criticisms. First, that the, Quran the Quranic text permitting polygamy is clear and certain. These are juristic terms. And so remains valid. Secondly, that even if one accepts the argument from historical context, that argument doesn't support a blanket ban on polygamy, but only stipulates that the legislator specify the social conditions for its practice, namely where, wherever polygamy would enhance the welfare of the Muslim community. Seeking a stronger argument, anti-polygamy scholars writing in the early 2000s have claimed that the fact of polygamy, eo ipso, violates the broader principles of the, of the revealed texts, the Akhasid Asharia. So we're back to, now we're, we're at that stage. Why did these scholars, or do they, this is the current uh, line of debate, base their arguments on the Makassid rather than on universal human rights? Of course, some proponents of legal reform do base their claims on universal human rights in Indonesia as elsewhere. But by the early 2000s, the stakes of Sharia were rising in Indonesia. A national debate had opened about how to translate the Islamic legal compilation, 1992, in, from simple decree into legislation, and some scholars propose that new laws go further toward a Sharia system. Although political parties promoting Sharia have not done particularly well, and this was true in this past year's elections as well, politicians and other public figures have been able to turn defending Islam to their advantage in specific local contexts. In 2005, the Indonesian Council of Ulama came out against pluralism, by which they mean ideas and practices suggesting the equality of religions, and weakening the boundaries of Islam. Some local politicians have seen electoral advantage in championing more morality and have begun to act by decree uh, morality laws, usually against drinking, gambling, and women walking alone at night or without proper attire. And as we saw early in Aceh, and it's only in Aceh, uh, by special legislative dispensation, the new rules have taken on the form of provincial statutes. In this new climate, it's rhetorically advantageous and perhaps even necessary to frame a legal argument <coughs> in terms of sharia rather, for example, than in terms of universal human rights or in terms of local norms. This would be my agreement with Abdullahi and Naim, by the way, if we want to pick this up later on. Consequently, some of those who object to sharia laws in Aceh speak in terms of the priorities of the Makassid rather than the rights of women. So I'll quote one woman, uh, Nuryana Ismail, who's a, a prominent lecturer at the Aceh Islamic University, talked to me two years ago about how she had defended basing law on Sharia when she spoke to the Indonesian Human Rights Commission in Jakarta. This is a quote from her. <clears throat> uh, the commission focused on the penalty of lashes applied here. 
I replied that the five major maqasid of Islam, as Ashatibi set them out, already contain universal human rights. The first, protecting religion, says that you cannot force religion on someone. The protection of life means that Muslims should not kill. Protecting reason is why alcohol is banned, and protecting wealth means that you, people cannot steal. But you have to see how much someone stole, and why, not just say, cut off his hand! You cannot arrest the poor man who steals a chicken and let the corrupter go. This is a major line of criticism, not you. <clears throat> Finally, we protect lineage by ordering relations between men and women so that they have descendants, but we prohibit fornication. And then Kardawi, Yusuf Kardawi, adds honor as another objective, and others have added the environment, and so on. So I tell people who are critical, don't mistake your target. It's not Sharia or Islam you should criticize, but the application. Because of the objectives of Sharia, one is to reduce the burdens and difficulties on people. Notice the prominence of Kardawi, by the way, in this debate within Aceh. Although some conservative scholars also embrace the idea of Maqasid al-Sharia, they've reacted against efforts to place these objectives above specific scriptural passages. Opponents of the proposed ban on polygamy highlight precisely the way in which some of these liberal commentators tend to set aside the specific Quranic text in order to claim that liberal forms of Islamic reasoning go against uh, the Quran. So one of, one of my favorite examples is a website uh, which simply has two columns on it. On the left, uh, there's each article of a proposed statute against polygamy. And these are all just Indonesian. There's no Quranic citation at all in these. And facing each is a Quranic citation that suggests the opposite view. The website's writers hardly need to state explicitly what their comparison communicates, namely that the proposed code is point by point opposed to the Quran. This, this insistence that one must accept anything that's in the text of Quran or Hadith is what has now led to adoption of criminal legislation in Aceh. The particular outcome of that debate, the law was just passed in September by an outgoing parliament, most people say despite the incoming parliament, which was majoritarily against these laws. That's still in the air, but we may know two general features of these Indonesian debates before turning to Europe. <coughs> First, the arguments now turn on how one should draw on Islamic texts and traditions, rather than on whether Indonesians should interpret the text differently from, say, Moroccans. Secondly, both sides cite support from authorities in widely ranging times and places, from Shatibi to Ibn Ashur to Kardawi. Few now claim, as bearers of Arab values, that these authors, someone like Shatibi or Ibn Ashur, are less appropriate guides for Indonesians than would be scholars from Java or Sumatra. These two components of current forms of argumentation, that it all depends on the interpretation of the texts and scholars from everywhere are cited. These two components of the way people argue now represents a significant shift from the way that debates on some of these same issues were argued 10 or 20 years earlier. Now I move to France. <coughs> the issues, well, have a pause for a second. It is my third lecture. The issues facing Muslims in France and generally in Europe are in a sense the mirror image of those facing Indonesians. Not how do we innovate, if indeed we should, in a social world already deeply and institutionally Islamic, such as that of Indonesia. But rather, given an absence of, an absence of Islamic courts, banks and mosques, minority status, and yet political conditions that permit worship, should we try to establish the same sorts of institutions in Europe that we had in Algeria, Syria, or Pakistan? Should there be new sets of norms for Muslims living, in, living as minorities, ones that take account of these absences? 
Or should Muslims rethink the essence or the objectives of these norms and institutions for Europe and North America? The debates around these questions pervade schools, mosques, and mass media. They rise out of quite pressing ethical and practical matters for Muslims in Europe and in North America. Should I continue to sacrifice an, atom, an animal on, on the Eid al-Adha when it has become practically difficult? Is it really necessary? Is a marriage conducted in France an Islamic marriage? May I take out a bank loan with interest or even work in a bank? To the degree that precise and pertinent norms based on scripture are either difficult to find or difficult to follow in Europe, pragmatic claims become more convincing. And they rely more on empirical knowledge <coughs> about the conditions of social life than they do on thick scholarship. They fit easily into Makassid reasoning. That's will be my argument. So let me just give you one example of this to show how even within Makassid reasoning, scholars can derive very different ideas about how to look for Islamic norms that would best, best fit France. In other words, how to, about how to engage in meta-reasoning about Islamic norms, which kinds of norms we should adopt in order to reason about then about particular problems. In the late 1990s, Muslims living in various parts of Europe brought questions about home, home mortgages to the European Council of Fatwa and Research. It's a collection of jurists of various nationalities who mostly reside now in Europe and who are led by Yusuf Kardawi. The Council's Fatwa affirmed the prohibition on usury, didn't change that, and it urged Muslims everywhere to avoid borrowing at interest, but also said that if Muslims in Europe could not find alternatives, then they could take out a bank mortgage for a first home. <clears throat> they justified their decision in two main ways. First, they drew on past rulings from the Hanafi and Hanbali legal schools, the two we've not talked about, these were minority opinions as it happened, to the effect that while living in non-Muslim countries, Muslims might legitimately make contracts that violate Islamic law. It's the less important reason. Secondly, they appealed to Makassid Asharia, our friend. Here they applied writings by Qardawi that extend the range of Makassid by defining public interest, Maslaha Amma, to include broad considerations of justice, the nature of the model community, and everything that makes life easier for Muslims and guides them to proper social arrangements and interactions. So in the case at hand, the council cited the Quranic text that he, Allah, has explained to you in detail what is forbidden to you except under compulsion or necessity. And, second text, but whosoever is forced by necessity without willful disobedience nor transgressing due limits, for him, certainly, your Lord is oft forgiving, most merciful. Right, so under conditions of necessity, you can be forgiven. The council then said that, quote, jurists have established that need, remember the hierarchy, uh, you, have, you have necessity, need, and improvements, the hierarchy set up by Shatibi, that need, whether for an individual or a group, can be treated in equal terms with extreme necessity, darura. Need is defined as those things, I'm still quoting, as those things which put the Muslim in difficulty if not fulfilled, even if he or she can do without. Extreme necessity, on the other hand, is that which the Muslim cannot manage without. Uh, Allah has lifted difficulty, as stated in Surah Al-Hajj and Al-Ma'idah, quote, and he has not laid upon you in religion any hardship, close quote. That's the end of the quote from the, from the council. Under this interpretation, matters of the level of, of needs, or second level down from necessities, may be treated as would be a necessity. Make it clearer, I'll, uh, here's the application. They argued that renting houses keeps the European Muslim in a state of financial insecurity. And that owning a house allows Muslims to settle in close proximity to a mosque and to modify the house to accommodate religious needs. 
Moreover, Muslims living in Europe had reported to the council that mortgage payments were equal to or lower than rents. So necessities, living a proper religious life, having a proper family life, are supported by needs, in this case, being able to buy a house. When in 2006 I attended the annual gathering of Muslims sponsored by the UAF, the Union of French Islamic Organizations, which has close ties to this council, it's an overlapping membership, I heard this line of reasoning set out again and again. This is an annual meeting. Oh, this is Yusuf Kardawi in the center, black, uh, black gown, white, uh, white uh, hat, at a picture of the, the UOIF, uh, who is welcoming this council to France. Okay. Here's, a, here's, the, here's, a, here's just a, a scene from the annual meeting of the, of the, of the UAF. It's a, it's a fair, you, you buy things, books, clothes, etc. Girls meet boys, and everybody files in the big hall to hear noted uh, speakers. In this case, this fellow, Abdullah ibn Bayah, the vice president of the World Council of Muslim Scholars, who defended speaking of a fiqh for Muslim minorities by saying repeatedly, in a, I thought, pro protesting too much sort of way, that, quote, we base all that we do on the Quran, the Sunnah, Qiyas, and Ijma, its analogy and consensus as an answer to, quote, those who object and say that we wish to create a new legal school with no firm base, close quote. He continued citing a shatibi along the way, quote, when we live in new contexts, we face new social processes, and we must develop facilitation, taisir, based on religion's objectives, the maqasid. <clears throat> he explained the general idea of the maqasid by combining historical examples with contemporary rulings on social matters in a way that made the latter, their rulings now, seem to have been foreordained by the former. Kind of biblical, I hadn't thought of it. For example, he coupled the fact that the Caliph Umar had ruled that a wife converted to Islam, but whose husband did not, shouldn't divorce her husband because preserving marriage is an objective of Islam. He coupled that with the European Council's ruling that Muslims should undergo civil marriages because it's a contract, marriage is only meaningful if it can be enforced, and in Europe only the state has that power. It was the same reasoning as Hisham, remember, a little while ago. Both involved Makassid reasoning. As one would expect from his defensive tone, the mortgage fatwa had elicited numerous commentaries for and against. But a note here is that among the positions taken by major French Muslim figures, disagreements were not about whether one should focus on the objectives of Islam, but on, we on whether allowing mortgages in Europe would place Muslims closer to or farther from those objectives. <clears throat> Some agreed with Qadawi and the council that allowing loans would ease family life and religious life. Others objected that it would lead to indebtedness and that it would diminish the creativity of Muslims because they would then have no need to invent new solutions. The second group also saw the fatwa on mortgages as driven in part by the project of formulating a fiqh for minorities, a distinct jurisprudence that would apply to Muslims living as minorities in non-Muslim societies. Scholars associated with Qaradawi, the UAF, champion this idea, as do many in North America, and in particular fixed scholars associated with the Islamic Society of North America. Hishim is one of the scholars opposed to this idea. Look, he said to me, Hishim al-Arafah, Muslims in India have been, have been a minority for a long time, and they did not create a whole different structure. The situation is not that different from that in other countries, say in Tunisia, that's where he's from, remember, where we do not have all that we need for living perfect lives. Close quote. He then recalled that Qadawi had argued that because rents were difficult in Europe, Muslims were compelled to borrow from banks. And I'm quoting his response to that notion. Why is the situation different elsewhere? Here, meaning Paris, my rent is protected, negotiated for three years at a time, and is renewable. 
in Tunisia, the owner could throw you out in a month, and there is not written agreement, so the situation is hardly, hardly better. Hisham's point was telling. Because the European Council had based their ruling on empirical claims about housing conditions, it's easier if you own a house, conceivably other Muslims could think themselves equally qualified to make a different empirical claim as the ground for a new ruling. If you favor Makassid reasoning and yet oppose developing a set of distinct norms for non-Muslim societies, how then do you adapt the broader norms to the specific conditions of life, say in France, if you don't want to do the sort of reasoning the Council engaged in? One answer is the one I already mentioned and that many, including the UIF, endorse, namely to find equivalence of Islamic norms in <coughs> already in European institutions. So a civil marriage can be seen to be Islamic along the lines I explained earlier. <coughs> but one may also remain with a globally accepted set of Islamic norms and then tailor it to each case at hand. So I'm going to give you an example from Hishim al-Arafa, which sounds like it's going to start off very inflexible, but it's going to end up adapting. When discussing with me how he approached requests for advice on abortions, he noted that, quote, contemporary scholars tend to oppose any interruption of pregnancy, and I follow them. You might think that the scholars would have been strict on this issue and doctors more flexible, but in fact the four law schools were more flexible in that the majority, this is, remember, those four legal schools, schools I put up before, in that the majority tended to tolerate abortion at some point in the process of pregnancy, usually for the first 40 days, but some also for the first four months. After that point, everyone condemned it. But then the Muslim doctors took their starting point from the fact that the embryo is living. <clears throat> and so they urged all abortions to be prohibited. The scholars ended up going along with the doctors starting in the 1970s, close quote. So Hisham begins with the reasoning that the, the maqsud of the ruling, the objective, is to preserve life. But then he builds in flexibility when he considers each case. I quote him again. What I do is to try to start with the current consensus. But Islam gives us a certain room to maneuver. So that, for example, if a woman comes to me and says she's pregnant, I consider her particular case. Perhaps she's t she has two young children already, and she's poor, and another child would really strain their budget. Then I tell her that she has some choice in the matter. There are several options, and what counts is that she's made this effort. This is the notion of an ijtihad, an effort to reason. This effort to think through the problem. For even in the case of a jurist, there's a hadith that says that if he is correct in his fatwa, he gets two benefits, but if he is wrong, he still gets one. This is what jurists tell me all the time, you know, it's so self-serving. Uh, uh, he, he gets one, sorry. Uh, he benefits from having tried. Um, but I also consider the type of person I am facing. If she seems like someone for whom giving her choice will just confuse her all the more, then I might urge her to make a particular decision. But if I think she can reflect on it and decide for herself, then I will urge her to do that. There is not one law but one way. Hisham thus retains what he sees as a universally applicable norm against abortion, justified in terms of the objective of preserving life, the maqsud, and then finds his flexibility in the way he speaks to the individual Muslim. It's a useful example of how this maqasid reasoning can lead you to a more conservative sense of what Islam says, and then you, you may or may not, other individuals may reason differently, you may then find other ways of finding flexibility in the application. In France, unlike Indonesia, the major voices raised against maqasid reasoning have come most authoritatively from jurists, jurists teaching outside France. Their critiques echo those I mentioned concerning Indonesia, except for a slight difference in nuance, that it is thick jurisprudence that the critics claim is being left behind rather than scripture. 
Because most French Muslims think of authority on Islamic matters as truly transnational, external voices, whether delivered in France or electronically conveyed there, can become highly influential. So I'm going to give one brief excerpt, maybe three sentences, I think, from a six-hour mosque debate held in 2002, one of many involving either Mohammed Said Ramadan al-Bouti or his son, Mohammed Taufik al-Bouti, both at the University of Damascus. There's Mohammed. Um, as it happened, I was one of the participants there, and as, as well as the ethnographer thereof. I've been a number of these things. This fellow on the right, Larbi Kashat, has had these really interesting uh, uh, ecumenical secular people, Christians as well as Muslims, uh, conferences at his mosque, the largest mosque in Paris, currently under reconstruction for a number of years. And that's uh, some interloper uh, between him and the next guy. So Mohammed Tafik al-Bouti, and here he is, writes, um, the guy with the guy looking a little bit askance, which says al-Bouti, maybe you can see it, the fourth from the left, is, is him. <clears throat> On this occasion, Tafik al-Bouti, he's, he's, he's fairly... Um, going for the juggler. His father is much more gentle, but actually sometimes packs us, uh, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a velvet fist there. On this occasion, uh, occasion <coughs> Taufik al-Bouti spoke at length about the importance of ijtihad and attention to the illa, the, <coughs> the reason for a verse, but only within the tradition of fiqh, as, uh, as ijtihadi jamai, or collective interpretation, didn't put that up. <coughs> In, in a few sentences, and without naming names, he condemned Qardawi on mortgages and also his, for his idea of a distinct fiqh for different regions. So the notion that you can be exempt from a mortgage if you live in Europe and there should be a fiqh for minorities. He condemns these in the following ways. Um, creating Islamic banks realizes the contemporary interests of Muslims without violating the principles of sharia and without contradicting the texts. We do not have two religions, two Islams. This issue has nothing to do with geographical reason, reasons, regions. And he calls um, uh, the sort of reasoning he hears in France all the time from people like Hisham and others uh, a bid'ah, which is a very bad thing to do. It's an illegitimate innovation. That, that he, he calls ijtihad al-maqasid, as if, as if there could be an ijtihad that isn't based on, on fiqh. Basically, he's saying, we're the scholars. Listen to us. You guys don't know beans about anything. It's the overall point. Why has reasoning from maqasid become widespread in France? Even the disagreements on this particular issue were framed in terms of maqasid. First, I must say that my most intensive discussions and observations have been in institutions, in schools, institutes, and mosques run by Muslims from North Africa, and that different tendencies would no doubt have shown up in West African and Turkish religious institutions. Many of the North African scholars combine a Maliki background and sometimes a nostalgia for that legal school with a preference for reasoning in terms of al-maqasid al-sharia. Tunisians play a predominant role in Islamic education, for interesting historical reasons, and they are the most likely to cite Ibn Ashur and wax nostalgic for the Andalusian heritage exemplified for many by Ashatibi. And I skip over some examples of that. Uh, a second and more general reason for the widespread use of Maqasid reasoning is that it fits very well a social engagement that might bring Muslim activists into alliance with non-Muslim groups. Protecting life or family are goals that easily can be generalized across religious and political traditions. For example, in the work of the Collective of French Muslims, one of the major national groupings of younger Muslims in France that for a long time was allied closely with Tariq Ramadan, of whom you probably know. <clears throat> the Collective enters into strategic alliances with non-Muslim organizations to push for shared policy goals, such as, such as legislation on global warming. warming. They then must show to their own members why these activities are appropriate for an Islamic group. The Paris branch holds sessions on these issues and they read selections from a Shatibi, 
remember the proof text on Makassid. The leader of that branch explained to me that through their sessions, quote, our militants know how it is that we arrive at positions on global warming or on the headscarves through the Makassid of protecting the planet. And next time, by the way, in May, the final lecture, I will talk about how the quite different political and social history of Muslim presence in England has led to quite different institutions and styles of reasoning. Well, <clears throat> the debates around Makassid reasoning in Indonesia and in France turn on similar, if not identical, issues. But they have quite distinct goals. In Indonesia, as in many other majority Muslim societies, to find a normative grounding that is within Islam, but outside traditional fiqh, for advocating new Islamic rules. In France, as in many lands of new large-scale settlement by Muslims, to find an interpretive approach that can be seen as methodologically Islamic for adapting Islamic norms and practices to new conditions. The plea in Indonesia is to respect a high-priority value that is either clearly within the Shatibi framework, such as the protection of life, or that ought to be so, such as equal rights for women. The European plea is to alleviate hardship for Muslims who find themselves in new situations, in buying a home or planning a marriage. The topographies of justification differ as well. Indonesian scholars may cite scholars from other times and places, but they, pre they present their own institutions, networks, councils, and state offices as sufficiently legitimate to serve as the political basis for their reasoning. At the same time, they are somewhat less likely than before to cite Indonesian values and somewhat more likely than before to cite generally applicable Indonesian ones, hence the genealogical working up to the Makassid. By contrast, European scholars refer back to their own places of education before coming to France and outward to authoritative centers of scholarship in Tunis, Syria, or Saudi Arabia, or on the internet sites consulted by scholars as well as ordinary Muslims. That's a point sometimes missed, by the way, in current writing about the Islamic internet. Everyone is looking at it. This offshoring of authority may make the notion of a fiqh for minorities attractive to some European Muslims as a way to reclaim authority for themselves in the light, light of those claims made by scholars in Syria to be better at fiqh. By way of the logic of Makassid, we know better how to safeguard family, religion, and so forth here. So these examples bring us back to the dual character of Islam. In this case, the uh, right genealogical reasoning leading to convergence from these two places and many others on shared sources. In this case, it happened to be Shatibi, Ibn Ashur, and then more recently Karadawi. But also local, local contextualization, the way that uh, very specific needs, very specific context leads to, lead to different uses made of these shared texts. They also remind us how these repertoires of Islamic reasoning in each place allow for considerable, considerable internal divergences. We see the debates over a fiqh for minorities within a generally Makassid-friendly circle of French Muslim scholars. And we see debates over priorities among Makassid within a similarly Makassid-friendly circle in Aceh. Both groups, however, are contested by others who insist on other forms of understanding Sharia. In these and other cases, in fact, these forms of reasoning do not settle matters, far from it. Rather, they provide new languages for reasoning about those social issues that are of considerable importance to Muslims. Thank you. We have uh, half an hour for uh, 
questions and responses. So, um, Professor Bowen, would you just like to take questions directly? Yeah, do you want to call or want me to call? Oh, sure. I can call. So let's see. We'll have uh, we'll be Adil in the sides of the room. Yes, back there, Mike. Can you shed some light uh, uh, about other schools, like the Wahhabi school, which is more uh, orthodox than the moderate schools that you mentioned, the four schools you mentioned? Also, can you say something about uh, Al Hadith, which is much more uh, discussions after the Prophet Muhammad? and say something about the Quran that is Munzal, which is, cannot be interpreted. And that's why Orthodox schools refer back to Quran that is Munzal. Right, right. Well, you know, I don't know really what to say because we're talking about very, you know, this would take a long time to say something more about these. Let me just, let me just, um, let me bring in, let me talk about the first one. Sort of the, the general role, let me stick with these people, but talk about the role that processions of Wahhabi, perceptions of Wahhabi or Salafi tendencies play in these discussions, if I may, may do that. Uh, which is that the, uh, there, there's an effort <coughs> by, on the part of, of uh, in the French case, many North Africans, to, while reasoning in terms of Makhasid, also push the study of Maliki fiqh. So at some of the institutes, there's a preference for Maliki. It wouldn't matter which school of fiqh, but many of these teachers say anything to sort of shore up the dikes against the cold wind blowing from the east, meaning Riyadh. So in uh, a class that I followed for quite a long time, taught by Hisham al-Arafat, it was an advanced class on, on, uh, on hadith, he emphasizes the, sci emphasizes the science of hadith and how complex it is to trace back these links, these isnad from people who wrote down, uh, uh, collected the hadith back through the many people who, who passed them along to, to emphasize that it's not as easy as those, those guys on the internet say it is, right? So a whole mechanism, a pedagogical mechanism, and a preference for continuing to work in a fixed tradition is, is set up against those folks. Now here, and I'll talk much more about this uh, next time, uh, the place of people who think of themselves as Salafi or al-Hadith is much greater. Uh, it's much more anchored in the society for various reasons that will take too long to go into. Uh, but those in France, they're certainly Salafis, uh, but they tend to be converts, people coming in from elsewhere. They tend, to, they tend to be relatively mobile. They're not as anchored in institutions as is the case in, in England. In Indonesia, uh, there's, there's really very little that, that, I mean, there are people who will call themselves Salafis, but Wahhabi is a negative term. So I just wanted to stick with those contexts, otherwise we, we take too much time. Somebody over here. Yes. Hi. Um, so the question I have, it's actually something that you had said, which I thought was really interesting. It was, um, so I'm paraphrasing here, something along the lines that lo local customs uh, became part of the Sharia. And I find this to be uh, interesting. What, I'm, what also comes to mind is then, how are these local customs, when they become part of the Sharia, justified in becoming part of the Sharia? And then from a jurisprudential point of view, then how is it that in terms of, uh, let's say, if these issues are brought to court, how is it that these local customs can be then justified from a religious perspective or a religious uh, point of view? Right, very good question. Right. Well, I'm not an expert in, um, in early Islamic jurisprudence, maybe people who are. Uh, but my understanding that I get from such experts is that um, in the, in, in, very early on in Islamic history, people were uh, you know, dealing with practical, uh, judges and dealing with practical matters 
in, <coughs> in different parts of the early Islamic world, um, we're drawing on local ways of doing business. So how do you establish a contract here? Okay, well that's fine. There's, there isn't something in the Quran that contradicts that or in the Hadith, so we'll take that on. We'll make that part of how we judge matters. And because we're doing it in a way that's consistent with Sharia, it becomes part of Sharia. So early on there's this, there's this notion, which in, it, it is somewhat of a contentious issue how you explain the four mazahib divergences among them, but one of the, one of the notions is that we had, uh, at least in two cases, scholars operating in different contexts, bringing in different norms. So, um, and, and then, of course, you have, you have the example of, of Umar, which is a little bit different, who is, is drawing on local conditions um, in order to say, well, we're not going to cut off the hand of the thief because we are not yet in the situation that was intended to be the prerequisite for, for carrying out that penalty, which is that everybody has enough to eat. Right. If somebody is stealing because he is starving or she is starving, we're not going to put that in abeyance. So right away there was a reference to social conditions in interpreting that particular rule. And Umar is cited constantly by all these people, right? Uh, as are, in a somewhat more sophisticated group, uh, some of the differences between the different mazahib. In the middle, anybody? Yes. I was interested in the very kind of um, complicated and I guess very sophisticated debates that seem to be getting had about all this sort of stuff. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, but I wondered, I mean, what, what happens at the level of sort of ordinary people in the street? I mean, right. are your studies primarily conducted amongst these really, you know, as I say, sophisticated scholars? Or does it get to the point where you can start looking at ordinary guys going to the mosque, do they also start making these similar kinds of references and flexible, you know, arguments and things like that? Right. Well, the, you know, the second book I wrote, Muslims Through Discourse, was um, partly motivated by my, uh, how impressed I was uh, at the sophistication, not necessarily fluency in Arabic, but nonetheless knowledge of hadith and, and various styles of reasoning that, that you know, Villagers in a relatively isolated Highlands area exhibited, so you know that really struck me. <clears throat> the, the, so in general, uh, you know, very, a definite yes. In the specific case, much less so in terms of the Makassid Sharia reasoning. Yeah, it's relatively new. Um, it, it, it isn't. Uh, the issues that come up are not uh, issues that are essentially, say, rural localized issues. So they're issues that tend to take place in a slightly higher uh, level. That said, <clears throat> uh, as Hishim once said to me, you know, if you played microphone on the sidewalk, you know, go around and interview people, just random Muslims in, in parts of Paris, everybody wanted to know about this mortgage uh, fatwa. And the reason was that it, <clears throat> many saw it as, just ordinary people saw it as saying, some saw it as saying, you know, there are ways to fit in. You don't have to feel like you're sort of all, you know, trapped like this. Others saw it exactly the opposite way. They said, you're saying that we're in a permanent state of not being able to settle, that we're, going to be, we're a minority, that we can't be real Muslims and obey the real laws because the prohibition against riba, against interest, wasn't, wasn't done away with. It was simply lifted for these people. So, you know, the psychological consequences were debated. So ordinary people were very, very, they were very aware of it. They were very concerned about it. Yes, over there. 
Uh, yes, I'm interested to know about the, the comparative approach um, uh, and uh, the ethnography basically you, you were saying that it has to be long but I mean if you for example if, if you're studying a certain issue in a Muslim society and uh, you need to compare in another Muslim society how long is that? I mean like you have to do a proper ethnography here and proper ethnography there and another thing, it's just um, trying to get an advice from you, because uh, I'm studying a system that is um, kind of custom uh, tribal in uh, the Arabian Peninsula that became um, integrated in Islam by the Prophet, which is a nature conservation approach, approach called the Hema. So in that case, how relevant is it uh, in anthropology of Islam or not? Well, the, uh, let me take on the first one. Uh, well, let me, for me, I ask you about this, this, the little bit at the end sort of threw me. Um, are you doing, you're doing this historically. So this, this study is a historical study about what we, It's revived, okay. Well, in that the case, system is still practiced right. in uh, southwest Saudi Arabia okay, and Oman and other places. Well, it depends on what your questions are. If you want to know um, what people do, what they argue about, how they justify it, uh, how they change it, then, of course, then yes, you definitely have to do long-term ethnography. I mean, there are many reasons why. One is you don't get to know people. It takes a while to get to know people. So they'll tell you stuff. I mean, where I work, people just delighted in, in sending tourists, you know, into the forest when they're asking for a way, you know, the way down the road, this sort of thing. You just have to be there a while, right? And then you can figure out when people are lying and what they really need and all that sort of thing. But in a way less, uh, um, well, it's not superficial, but maybe just equally as important is the fact that you know, it takes a while to figure out what's going on. And then, and then things, there's something called the, the annual cycle. And I'm, I, surely in your case, there's an annual cycle where, depending on the weather, different issues come up. You've got to be there for this thing. And there are ritual cycles. So it's, it's, it's hard to do even just a year's field work. You know, really, short of 18 months, it's hard to imagine you know, decent field work. Um, now, let me say, so I'm, I'm very much against the sort of current trend because it's a word, it's trendy, and therefore it's okay if, you know, multi-site ethnography, where you, you know, a month here, a month there, cool. It's cool. Yeah, but it's, it's flat. It's narrow. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's shallow. Um, we can't all do, you know, multi-year studies in multiple places, but we have colleagues. That's why I said conversations, right? So, you know, I work with my colleagues elsewhere in Indonesia, John or others, and I work with colleagues working in different parts of Europe, and we share, we compare notes. And that, that's how anthropology becomes a comparative science. It's not that I go and do all these things, and it's not that we all do exactly the same thing. It's that we compare notes in interesting ways, and we discover, as Werner Mensky and I did once, that, hey, you know, the, the talak is only registered with a triple talak in Pakistan, but hey, in Indonesia, after one, it's registered. Why is that? We hadn't really thought about that very much, and we can go and look into it. Finally, a voice from the middle. Yes. I see her. Yeah. Uh, as always, I enjoy your lecture, John. Um, there is one thing that comes to my mind when listening to your lecture. Um, the lecture given by Michael Gilson and last November in uh, Aga Khan University. Uh, at the time, he explained about uh, court adjudication in Singapore, uh, about inheritance, and then uh, he explained that uh, there is something related uh, to Hadramaut and yeah. uh, properties as well somewhere else in Indonesia. And at the time, I remember that uh, his idea was about uh, traveling uh, tax, traveling culture, or traveling legal documents. And when I heard your uh, argument here, you tried to put Makasit 
in Aceh and in Paris as well. As well. So I, I found it a similar uh, case, is that you are trying to argue about uh, traveling culture, something that might be uh, connected or related to uh, Rosen, uh, law as a culture. So do you think I'm uh, correct or wrong to see this way? <coughs> Well, Arskal, I'd never want to contradict either you or Michael Gilson. It would be a foolish <laughs> proposition. Um, uh, I, I, I prefer to be very flat-footed in my prose. So rather than talk about traveling culture, I'd rather say, well, where did uh, Hishim Arafa, where did he get his ideas? You know? And what about Alias Bakar? Well, we know he studied in Cairo, and we know he has, so he reads certain things. And so I'd much rather look at their, you know, what they're doing, because in fact, I think the picture you then get is, not an image of something traveling, which I really, that's one of the things I don't like about, you know, an object that travels on its own. Rather, you get the image that I was more something like of what I was trying to convey, that you have people who are looking, looking up the, the chain, as it were, uh, for sources of authority through, through scholars to the scholars they draw on to something that they can, uh, uh, they can hold on to, right? Um, in Hisham's case, he often looks for a, a Malay site uh, which translates into Arabic things that come up in other languages in the world. It's quite interesting, but he's trying to do that. So it's not the thing that's traveling, it's the individuals who are searching for these, these sources. Now, m much of Michael's stuff has to do with uh, actual people traveling and inheritance claims, right? And that's sort of a different thing. That's more about social networks, I think, um, and perhaps people who carry with them certain ideas as they move from one place to another. I mean, you have that also, right? But that's a, that's a different sort of phenomenon. I think we just have to see you know, precisely what is the, the social phenomenon that we're looking at, and then we can, we can label it. But I, I, always, I always prefer the sort of flat-footed words. You know, I think in anthropology, we're really, you know, it's too easy to get published if you have nice little things in, in, in scare quotes, right? Um, and, and, and often backed up by not very much evidence. So that's my, my shtick. I won't pound that one into the ground. So either side is good. We have two people over here, though, so it's, it's, where, it's where the action is. Um, thank you for your lecture, first of all. Um, I had a question in terms of the people that you interviewed about Sharia. Um, did they fixate on one particular school or, or certain individuals, or were they able to see that uh, the way Sharia was looked at at different points in history, mm. they, there could be one particular issue, but it was interpreted different ways at different points in history. Were they able to see that, or was it more on specific schools? Well, my... It's a, it's a general question, so I'll give you a general answer. <coughs> my sense of how many people reason, I'm thinking now of judges and others who are in judge-like positions, like these fellows who are asked to give uh, fatawa, they're not judges, but you know they're they're giving some sort of judgment, right? Is that often they often they've got a they've got an instinct, they have a feeling for something. You know, this is where we ought to go. Like Hisham when he decided, yeah, you know, were, the, the the doctors were right when they said that uh, it's a matter of the the maqsud of life, and life begins when the embryo uh, is, is 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 present, and so we've got to go with that. I don't know that he he said, well, how do I make that decision? How do I weigh that against something? I think he had a sort of a feeling. That said, okay, now what do I do with that? And so then the reasoning process starts uh, thereafter. Uh, very, it's a pragmatic way of reasoning, which we see among all sorts of judges, and we see it among religious scholars. If, you know, we're trying, to, we're trying to come up with a certain outcome that has a certain social benefit. We can say, okay, it's the maslaha, and it's the maqasid sharia, and all that. But often we have some particular sorts of social needs in mind, right? Um, what I, I, I see very, I, so I don't, in, in the sorts of things I'm concerned with, which is not the scholarship 
per se, but the ways in which people are trying to accomplish a social goal through scholarship. So it's already biasing in some sense the sorts of things I'm looking at. You know, almost, almost ipso facto, I'm seeing people look back with, with an outcome in mind rather than do what you're suggesting, which is a perfectly valid social practice. It's a different sort of social practice, which is say, let's look at how these uh, judgments change over, change over time and, or in different schools. Um, the other part of your question had to do with uh, uh, holding on to different schools. In the, in the Indonesian case, well, let me just very quickly here, there, there's a background preference in Aceh among these rural scholars for Shafi'i because uh, there's a notion that you stay within the tradition and if every, it's a sort of a legal certainty argument as we put it in the West, right? If we stick with one tradition, everybody knows what we're talking about, it's much more important politically to keep disorder, fight disorder, right? An important Muslim value, to stick with that one uh, mazhab, that one tradition, right? Um, so there's that, and against that, th this is a subject of uh, other talks I'm, I'm, I'm giving here and there, against that judges will it, on the Islamic court in Aceh, they might refer to another school in their own internal deliberation, say, gee, Hanafi had a good idea about this one, let's do that. But then they will try to come up with a Shafi'i justification to appease the conservative religious scholars, right? So they don't have so much of a preference. They're more modernist, if you, if you, if, if you wish, right? But these other guys do. So each situation has its own mix of school preferences versus more of a pragmatic uh, sort of activity. There was another hand over here, I think, before, yes. Yeah, um, one one view uh, regarding the the schools or mazahib uh, is that uh, one reason of of intellectual stagnation in the Islamic thought has been strict adherence to one or another schools. Yeah. So and and the argument goes like this: that uh, you know, can we start from a clean slate? Mm -hmm. Can we start from the basic sources? Because if you take back, if you if we if we understand your position of, uh, of you know the text and the context, then the problem lies that all the schools, all the exhaustive uh, jurisprudence was done in a particular context. So that has been definitely changed. Um, so do you see do you see any any in your observation of different schools? Do you see any tendency in in the modern Muslim thought of uh, going beyond? these four or five schools yes. um, and going back to a kind of clean slate approach? Right, again, a, 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 a very important broad question. I'll, I'll try to give a concise answer and then, because we could talk great, <coughs> a great deal about this. Yes, you see, among other things, you see two kinds of moves. One is this patching of uh, taking from different schools. And so really you're saying, um, which school had, a, had the best idea often for what we need now, you know? Uh, Hanafi school allows a woman who's, who marries without her wali, her guardian being present, allows that marriage to be considered valid if the guardian doesn't show up and object within a certain time. Let's use that because that's so normal and reasonable, right? There's that sort of reasoning, right? There's another kind which says we need to go back to Quran and Hadith. These are the Al Hadith in the, in the South Asian case, for example, which is a little, a little bit different, although sometimes it can, it can end up looking the same, saying we should, we should really um, focus as much as possible on what the Hadith actually, actually tell us. Uh, rather than starting from a particular school or even uh, from four Sunni schools. Right here. Hi there, thanks very much. Um, my question is about whether you see the, um, the way in which Adat 
courts and the Sharia courts in Indonesia in Aceh in particular interacted with each other um, and whether you saw them as um, being a site of potential forum shopping for actual the man on the street as Professor James said um, and how people actually as opposed to thinking about this um, acted in relation to these courts and if there was different options available for people in, the, in their legal strategies and also in their religious strategies for justifying behaviour and so on. Yeah. Well, right, Aceh is a special case in Indonesia. There's no overlapping jurisdiction. Elsewhere in Indonesia there is. Uh, almost everywhere. I think perhaps everywhere else. Uh, in matters of inheritance, a litigant can choose either a civil court, it's not an adat court, a civil court, where adat might be taken. A certain form of codified adat or... or Judicial audit, we might say, might be might be used, or an Islamic court, right? But not in Aceh. So uh, there is no form shopping in in all over the rest of Indonesia. Sorry to be so. Uh, there is lots of form shopping elsewhere, and it's the it's the sort of obvious sort of thing, you know. Where where are you going to get the best deal? You go there. It's not complicated. We see it in, in England now. I'll talk a bit about this next time. You know, between the Sharia councils and the civil court. So it's not between two courts. It's between a mediation service and a court. Nonetheless, it's similar. Anything else? This is a question or a note. Uh, meet me outside and bring your second. Um, uh, yeah, no, it's someone I might be interested in meeting. Yeah, yeah. I have a question. Um, if we, if we think in some ways about the enterprise of the comparative study of Islam, in a way analogous to your account of how we should think about Islam. Um, we go back to the Ur text there of, say, Geertz's Islam Observed. Would you say that decades later um, you know, one should be departing from that text in, in ways that we can see, or that, or thinking about that text as, a, as something in context, um, that the appropriate study today is in a very different context, intellectually and thisworldly? Um, that calls for a different kind of enterprise, or that, or that makes it unsurprising <coughs> that we see in practice a different set of, of, of activities of which you are merely one of many sort of practitioners. That's a really interesting question. It gave me some of the background. A very famous book written uh, 1960, what, eight when he gave those lectures at Yale, I think? Uh, by Clifford Geertz, a very famous American anthropologist, uh, probably uh, proscribed reading in some departments in this country, um, uh, who um, in, in, this, in this book uh, said, um, very thin book, I recommend it to you, called Islam Observed, said, uh, you know, he did what political scientists would call a most different case strategy. He said, let's take two places that are the most different possible. Uh, you got Morocco on one end of the Islamic world, and you have Indonesia, where he'd been working before, on the other. And, and, and let's see how two very different cultural styles developed in these two Muslim places. And it's a very nice demonstration of that. And what we should still take from that, it's a very important lesson, is this bit about divergence that I emphasize, right? Because it's a very good text for that. The, the, um, the, I won't say the problem, but what's changed? And you, John, you, you gave me a very nice way of thinking about this, you know, as we've moved on. Uh, because at the time Cliff was writing that book, there was very little anthropological study of the, what people think of as the central practices and texts of Islam. There was very little on Quran use. Um, there was very little on things uh, like pilgrimage or, or salat, worship, or, or du'a, prayer. Very little anthropology. There's still not that much, frankly. But, but there, was all, there was virtually none. Richard Antoon had done a very nice study in Jordan of sermons. 
maybe there are one or two other things here or there, but basically the, is, the Islamologues or the is, uh, Islamists, Islamicists, Islamicists, definitely not Islamists, the Islamicists said to us, go away, you guys don't know beans. Um, don't, you know, you can, you can muck around with uh, exotic uh, whirling dervishes and you can talk about social structure, we don't want to do that, but not Islam, not the central stuff. And so, Cliff, that was, and so he didn't either really in that book. So that's, that's what I'd say, he wasn't doing that either. And it wasn't until, you know, some of us later on said, well, you know, actually there is something interesting going on in village context and urban context that we really can only approach as anthropologists that has to do with the central stuff and debates that these Muslims, even village Muslims, have about how you read the how you read Quran and how you pray and everything else. So yeah, I think the contextual part is important, but I would hold out for the validity. What Cliff didn't get at, because not, nobody was doing this, was the first part. I had to remember the two characteristics of Islam was the first part about the genealogical reasoning. Because again, you only, you only discern that when you're looking at sort of core practices within Islam, which is justifying your use of particular hadith by you know, going up the Isnad, um, or by uh, citing your lineage if you're if you're part of a if you're part of a Sufi a Sufi order, etc. It was very little of that yet, but he got the other one right, and he did it very early on. Yes. Uh, yes, I I wanted to ask you about what may be an implicit link between your first and second mm. lecture, but unfortunately, I wasn't at your first lecture, so it may be sort of even more implicit than you intend. But I was very interested in this space um, that you talked about within the Parisian school of interpretation, in which there was a space, and I quote, of pragmatic conditions and knowledge of social life, which would then be, provide the basis for developing new, new laws or new legal rulings within the Islamic tradition. And I wondered whether that space was a kind of space for the secular within this, within this legal tradition, and whether you wanted to reflect on that as a kind of confined space for the secular, as a kind of social reality that had to be come to terms, had to be sort of brought to terms with the Islamic tradition, and I'd rather like you to reflect on that. Right, right. Well, um, if, you, if you look at uh, someone like, the work of someone like David Powers, a really excellent Islamic historian at Cornell who writes on, among other things, he writes some sort of wacky stuff about really early Islam, uh, but he writes extremely good. He's like the only person to really do these really clear studies of uh, 15th century Morocco cases. Try to get in, try to figure out how a qadi works, a judge works. And, you know, judges are doing very much the same thing then and there, you know. Um, taking into account desired social outcomes. Uh, taking into, so, I mean, judges are dealing with practical life, and Islamic judges, secular judges, Christian judges, Hindu judges, they're all doing this, you know. They're trying to solve particular problems, and often they say, I hate this woman. I'm going to find a way that she loses, right? That sort of thing. Um, it's not limited to a particular place. So do we call that the secular? It doesn't really help us. Uh, particularly since it's hopelessly anachronistic to talk about, you know, the, sec the secular. Um, what you missed in the first one was my uh, uh, um, uh, lack of attraction to, to the phrase the secular, as if there's a thing out there that like some plasticine and we take a little bit and throw it up. We throw it in the middle of a reasoning process and it expands and, you know, gives us, liberates all the women all of a sudden. Or something. Um, no, I think that uh, what's more useful is to think about, you know, very particular ways in which states protect, limit, in a somewhat even-handed way, religious organizations. Um, so I think of it as more, uh, more on the outside. And of course, within each of these religious traditions, there's always been things that we don't think of as the religious. But if you, if you ask that Qadi in fifth, the 15th century, you know, so is, what's the religious part of what you're doing? I'm a judge. You know, I'm trying to give a decision. 
I draw on my knowledge of these people. If I, if I want to find out the fact of what, of what Islam says, for, that's an empirical question. Bail Halak did a very nice thing on this recently. It's, it's empirical. I'll ask the Mufti, and he'll say, Islam says such and such. I'll say, okay, you know, I put that in. And then if there's a big hole, nobody has anything to say, I'll just, I'll come up with something, right? So he, you know, he wasn't working with these sort of uh, analytical categories that we do now. Um, in terms of the people that you interviewed, did you feel that when they spoke about Islam or the Sharia, did they, I mean, what kind of uh, authority did they give in terms of their speech towards these two objects, as you can call them? Did they say, oh, Islam says this, or Sharia says this, or did they say that, well, my understanding, uh, my understanding of Islam or my understanding of this specific uh, case in Sharia says this. I mean, how did they often... What's the grammar of the... Yeah, what yeah. was the grammar they used to kind oh, of... Oh, it's definitely the latter. You know, it's definitely the latter. And, it, and it's always, a, it's, it's always um, a, a, an important lesson for us not to say Islam says this or that, even though we hear people talking that way. The people who actually know what they're talking about don't speak in that way. So they know that these are fallible human efforts to understand what are very difficult texts. And, you know, the, the bit about, I was a little bit too quick to, to write this up, but the bit about there's one, there are two, two merits for the judge who gets it right, one merit for the judge who gets it wrong, and, you know, nobody burns in hell, and they're kind of trying, right? Sounds a little too, you know, American, but anyway. <laughs> question over here. You talked a bit about Hashem's uh, reasoning in France and about how he was presented with this question of, um, sort of if a, a, a French Islamic couple should or could, they could, they could get a French civil wedding. And he was sort of presented with that question and what he came up with in the end was the reasoning of why they, sort of, they should get one, that, is, that it was something that Islam required of them. So I was kind of wondering, firstly, if there's kind of been any success in the wider community adopting this idea that you know, French civil marriage is an ethical structure they should be going into. Right, right. And it kind of if beyond that, if, if there's sort of been any following on discourse that if it really is the ethically correct thing for a Muslim to choose to get a mortgage in some situations, if he should choose to get a rented mortgage in some situations, not just that he can. Ah, that's an interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. Um, I've never heard anybody say the last bit. The other one, uh, and, okay, here is a function of how we, in a particular lecture, you know, take almost an hour anyway, it was a lot of information, we, we focus it on some things and just leave other things out. What I did very little of uh, was the, um, the broader world of um, positions taken in France on issues like that. I had a little bit of it, right? Um, and what I'll do next time, by the way, this isn't just ads, it's just to say that you know, there's a different sort of perspective next time is contrast the English reaction. You know, I tell, when I tell English uh, uh, scholars about what someone like Hisham and many others say, and they go, that's, that's so awful. That's giving up. You know? And so I want to explain why. Why, is, why do you hear one a lot and, and in one place and not very much uh, in, in another. But no, on that particular issue of how, what he asked was how widely accepted is this notion that um, a civil marriage in France should be considered to be already an Islamic marriage and that indeed one has the duty to do that. No, it's not, uh, um, not that widely accepted, but on the other hand, people think about it. You know, what would it take to make a, to make it really Islamic, um, you know, you need the wali maybe, and then it, maybe it could be. And so there's, you know, it's within the bounds of, uh, a possibility. Uh, there, 
Uh, but then always somebody comes back. There's a great internet debate, actually, I put in this, this latest book, where someone's trying this out on the, one of these internet exchanges, because a bunch of people don't know very much, and they're trying to figure out if a certain woman was really married. It turns out most of them horrifiedly said, <gasps> she probably was never married, and then it was consummated. But uh, somebody tries this bit out, you know, about you know, uh, civil marriage is already Islamic. The other guy comes back and says, what? You mean some ignoramus in a red, white, and blue bow tie can tell me that what the will of God is? You know, good luck if that's what you think about Islam, and it just you know cuts it off at that point. So it's a matter of Sunday. At this juncture, I think we should uh, give Professor Bowen another beer. Uh, shortly, a beer for the moment, uh, a round of applause, and to await uh, early May, May fourth, uh, he'll be returning to give uh, the last of these um, three lectures. In the meantime, many thanks for this uh, excellent lecture and discussion. Thanks for your questions. Too.